Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 27th of November, 2012, and our special guest is Charles Hayes. Charles, welcome. Thank you. Really delighted to have you here. We'll tell a story or two when we get started about how that came about. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am also on my Hack Your Education tour, which may or may not come up tonight. I think it might, but basically an attempt to build a narrative around education that takes back the topic of learning. The Global Education Conference, although not indicated on the slide, has actually occurred. And the 425 sessions over the course of five days are all up in recorded form and available for anybody to listen to. Really delighted to have had that event go so well. Also, uh, the archives of the Future of Libraries Conference and the Learning 2.0 Conference are available at those websites. And I am in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, California. Hack Your Education is in Los Angeles this weekend. Thanks, Carolyn, for asking. Coming up on the Future of Education on Thursday night, Jim Groom is going to talk about the program he's running called A Domain of One's Own. So excited about that show. On December 6th, Ray McNulty will talk about his book, It's Not Us Against Them, Creating the Schools We Need. Cal Newport comes back on the 13th to talk about his new book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Why Skills Trump Passion and the Quest for the Work That You Love. Can't wait to, to hear Cal on this topic. Uh, the EduBlog Awards will probably be around the same date, but it can't be on the 13th because of that interview. But the EduBlog Awards will be that week at some point, broadcast live between the US and Australia. Adam Fry comes on the show on the 18th to talk about EdTech entrepreneurism. This should be really interesting. Adam has been a hero of mine, building slowly and thoughtfully a great business in education that serves um, serves the customers well, serves schools well, serves students well, and is in many ways diametrically the opposite of the venture capital engagement taking place right now in educational technology. And then David Risher comes on in January to talk about World Reader, a fascinating program of getting books on e-readers out into the world. Also scheduling for 2013, John Hattie and Elliot Washer, which would be a lot of fun. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded and up in full Illuminate Blackboard Collaborate versions and an MP3. I interviewed Kiran Birsetti from India this weekend. I had to do so at a very early hour. Did not do that live, but that recording will be up tomorrow. And she is fascinating. Many of you have probably seen her TED Talk. We spent an hour talking about the program she's doing and giving youth agency. Those are my words, not hers. But really a fun interview and can't wait for you to be able to hear that. Yale Wishnick before that um, talked to us about the culture of dependency versus a culture of success. Jamie McMillan on legendary learners, which was fascinating. That's a book I actually think Charles would love. Denise Pope from Stanford talked to us. Susie Boss uh, before that on innovation. Kirsten Olson, who's mentioned in September University, her book, uh, Wounded by School, came on the show, and many, many more. So over 300 shows all up there in recorded form. This is when those of you in the studio audience get to let us know where you're listening from. Look to the left of the map for a star. You double-click on that, and then you click on the map. Put in the chat maybe time, temperature, location. Looks like New Zealand, Australia, Mexico, United States, Canada. It's always so fun to see where people are listening from. And wherever you are, we're sure glad that you've chosen to join us. Oh, Anna, you're in Indonesia. Go ahead, Charles. Hello? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah okay. I thought you had started yeah, well, to say I'm something. In, oh, no. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm in Wasilla, Alaska, by the way. And we'll put, I'm going to move my star to Wasilla. Well, I'm going to move my star to Alaska, having no idea where Wasilla, Alaska is. Well, it's about 40 miles uh, north of Anchorage. 
Well, Charles is, well, we've got two in New Zealand. What a fun group. What a diverse group. Really delighted to have you here. Diversity will be a theme tonight. No doubt about that. Okay, so uh, there is no Mighty Bell space for this show yet because Mighty Bell's been uh, down in a server reboot. But I will uh, look to put the resources up in Mighty Bell, and you can look for that later on the blog. So I want to tell quickly, Charles, the story of my reaching out to you. I've put up on the screen, which you can't see, Charles is coming in by telephone, the cover from Self University, and then the cover from September University, and then your photo. So I reached out to you originally about doing an interview on Self University, and I'm going to paraphrase your response, which was that you can barely stand to reread the lines of that book, it's so old. Has your thinking changed that much, or is it just hard to see things you wrote that long ago? Well, I think my, my thinking has changed quite a bit. Uh, uh, but uh, I have a hard time uh, with with anything of mine that's dated. If my, um, The whole purpose of self-education is to keep learning, and so hopefully, you, if, hopefully if you detest your earlier work, you've made some progress. <laughs> That's a great description. Uh, I, I guess I could say the same thing about my interview series. It's very hard for me to listen to the early interviews. So let me try. I, I, go ahead. I have never been able to listen to myself on the radio. I've been on. I've been on quite a few radio programs, including the uh, uh, Talk of the Nation, but and they sent me a tape. But I have never been able to listen to myself because I'm I'm too too self-critical. I guess. That is funny. So I want to paraphrase what I think the core message of September University is, and then I want you to correct me and allow us to sort of jump into that conversation. Uh, what I hear you saying is that we desperately need really good conversations and deep thinking at this time. The baby boomer generation is coming of maturity and are a generation that both uh, have an inclination toward change and the potential to really make a difference by sheer numbers. And it's a challenge for them to step up and be adults because nothing much is at stake except the fate of civilization. How did I do? You did very well. Uh, the, the baby boom generation, I, I was born in 1943, three years ahead of the baby boom generation. They've always been a bit a step ahead of me. but. Uh, uh, their their action during the during the days of the Vietnam War and the in the civil rights uh, uh, era, uh, I, I just can't believe that these people are going to go away quietly. And in 2011, the first wave of the baby boom generation hit age 65, and somewhere around 10 or 12 thousand people a day are hitting 65, and it's really really early because this is going to continue until 2029. But I think in the book you do express a little bit of fear that they will go away quietly. But is there a um, is there a reason you think that those voices have not been as strong or as critically involved in public dialogue as they might have been? Well, I think it's I think it's still very early. I mean, I think there's a there is probably several years before we're really going to start seeing, the, reaping the benefit of it. But but I, I will admit openly that I am worried. Uh, I, I mean, it's sort of like on even days I'm I'm optimistic, and on odd days I'm pessimistic. <laughs> uh, th there's so much going on in the world, and so much change, and so many so many uncertainties that. Uh, uh, but I, st I I have a lot of faith in them. I I, I mean, there I, I just you know there's as many old fools as there are young ones, probably more. But there's something about reaching the age when you when you uh, can see the end of your own. Life that uh, it, it makes the things that are really important suddenly start to stand out. And if you have children and grandchildren, I don't think you can help but uh, be very concerned about the the years they're going to see that you won't. So the book's argument really isn't about whether or not the generation will step up, but it's more that there is a need for a certain kind of discourse and dialogue, a certain way of looking at education that's critically important at this time in the world. Would that be fair? Yes. Yes, it would be. So tell us what an existential education is. Well, I think primarily we are taught 
to become human doings and not human beings. I mean, we we allow uh, subjects like psychology and anthropology and sociology and uh, history. We allow these some of these subjects to be electives, and they're not electives unless you're not a human being. I mean, we desperately need to understand other cultures and other people. Uh, to put to put that, and we desperately need to understand ourselves to the best ability we can. I mean, knowing these things. I mean, I, I say in the book that uh, you know psychologists still have mental problems, and marriage counselors still get divorces. But learning, in to me, enables us to dissipate existential angst, and it's it's just that simple. Well, it may be simple to you, but I'm not even sure I fully understand that phrase. Learning allows us to dissipate existential acts. Do you mind breaking that down for a slow guy like me? <laughs> well, I talk about in I talk about in the book. I talk about what I call the existential triad, and that's the fear of death, uh, the fear of others, and a lack of curiosity. And I think those three things. I mean, I, I, I pose them in a triangle, but I think those three things are sort of at the heart of existential angst. I mean, with the, with the human condition comes the knowledge, whether it's uh, suppressed, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that we're mortal human beings. And we have, we, we spend an extraordinary amount of time trying to uh, uh, distract ourselves from that very notion. And it's easy to to uh, uh, begin to associate uncertainty and other people and uh, uh, other things with that fear. I mean, the the natural fear that comes with with mortality. And so we distract ourselves and and we bond bond ourselves together in our our in groups by ratcheting it up our angst. I mean, our angst at other people. And uh, once once you once you reach a, um, a critical amount of, of awareness about uh, the validity of other people and other nations and other points of view, I just think it, it, it allows you an avenue of thinking and a way of, a way of releasing anxiety that uh, you otherwise wouldn't have. So as I was reading the book, I tried to sort of think in my own mind of um, what might have precipitated sort of our current state, and I I know that from from the interviews I'm doing and books that I look for, a lot of the material that has really resonated with me came from books in the in the 70s, self-directed learning, things like this. Is it fair to think that something happened between the 60s and the counterculture and the protests and the 70s and the views of schooling and opportunities to change schooling to sort of 2012 when it feels like there was this big gap that was just all about corporate growth and consumerism and increased equity? Well, I, I don't think it's something that's happened quickly. I think it's happened so gradually that we don't even realize it's happened. Uh, the, to me, the world seems to be getting so so superficial, so so uh, the, the the tweeting and texting and and I mean it's it's hard to hard to make this clear without <laughs> being confusing. But I mean, I have a lot of faith in young people. I, I think young people are smarter by orders of magnitude than my generation was when when uh, I was their age. But at the same time, I see young people today uh, flitting around like subatomic particles because they're being tweeted and texted, and and with little bits of information. When when, to my thinking, they need to spend a lot of time doing deep reading. And as a matter of fact, they they just they balk at the idea of reading a novel or a, a long nonfiction book. So I, I think I don't know. I mean. Your 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 question is is profound, and I'm not sure I'm not sure exactly how to how to answer it. Well, I'm going to use myself as an example, but as will become clear, not 
not just uh, not an overly positive one. But I know that in our own raising of our children, we chose uh, not to have a television for many, many years. And that really made a difference. And it also feels as though you know, the modeling of reading and deep thinking um, do transfer to your kids. But kids are different, and not every child responds the same way. But I look at this current generation of kids, and I wonder if we, their parents, don't actually have more responsibility than they do for not having set the example of deeper thinking. Well, I think so, Steve. But I mean, but still, uh, to me, uh, the the peer group has so much more influence on young people than we think they do. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if if you read the Nurture Assumption by Judith Harris. I mean, I, I didn't, but you in, mentioned it several times in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she makes a very good case that uh, that. All, a lot of our our uh, training as parents uh, can pretty easily go by the wayside, or it's it's it discounted a lot more than we think it is. I mean, and I, I'm and I'm saying that I would not uh, I would not uh, recommend that people let up on on that kind of parenting, but uh, I, I just believe that uh, peer pressure is vastly underestimated. Okay, well, um, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's good commentary in the chat. Um, I went through something about five years ago when I started participating in social media. So I'm going to give the counter story to the sort of the new technologies. And when I started to blog and do my interview series, uh, I can only describe what I went through as being a cognitive revolution. It was as though my brain began to fire at levels that it hadn't before. And I was participating, and imperfectly as it was, I became an active contributor and creator by virtue of the social technologies. Is that phrase, a cognitive revolution, kind of what you're hoping people will go through? Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, I think that uh, the problems that we face uh, uh, have to be discussed and 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 people have to get involved um, i mean that the the, the uh, uh, you know every every presidential election that for the last over the last twenty years has seemed like the most important one in in life <laughs> and it's not going to let up it's going it's going to keep that way too. Well, let me extend on that a little because it felt like the the election cycle we just went through had more was more had more in common with uh, the branding that would go on between Pepsi and Coca-Cola than it did around yeah. substantive issues. In fact, the things yeah. I cared about most weren't even discussed. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is the the generation that's in a position to do so now has to become actively involved and start talking about these substantive issues. Yeah, and I believe they are. I, I believe it just hasn't re reached really audible, audible uh, uh, terms yet. But I, I mean, there are an awful lot of uh, positive things going on in the country, but they, they don't receive near as much attention as the negative ones. Okay, so uh, you have a great description in the book of how your thoughts come to light, and um, I'll let you describe that, but. What I enjoyed sort of about the book as a whole was this sort of thinking about thinking and learning. And, and I wrote in the margins you know, a number of notes of what, about ways in which I think. Like I realized in your description of how your thoughts come to light that a piece that, that I go through that wasn't in that description is that those thoughts often come to me in conversation. They gestate, and then they bubble up, and then I hear myself say them to somebody, and I have to go write them down. Do you want to describe your thought process? Uh, yeah, well, well, uh, whenever I become interested in a subject, I'll read everything I get my hands on it, on and and look in every source and think about it and 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 brood about it for days, and and then I'll begin to ask myself particular questions about it, and with the anticipation that I'm going to get some answers, and then and then I'll sort of let it go for a while, 
and then like I say in the book, I, I can be uh, taking a shower or paying a bill in a restaurant or something or other, and all of a sudden I get a flash of, of insight into the, into what I've been uh, looking for. And I, I too, have to write it down or I, or I will forget. But th this thing is so powerful to me that for several days after it, I have a feeling of, of ex extended well-being. Um, and my, my theory about that is is uh, I believe that whenever your your knowledge in any subject reaches a critical mass in which a significant change or development causes a really cerebral sh shift that we have been been created to get a great deal of pleasure out of it and it's if you go if you if you think about what life must have been like in prehistory in 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 tribes around the around the uh, world i mean if if look at the at society that i mean at the the history of humankind on the planet from the beginning, if that were represented by a 12-inch ruler, the, t the, the, the times that we have been living the way we do now would be so small you wouldn't even be able to get a measurement. You wouldn't even be able to tell what the measurement was on the ruler. So during all that time, most of that time, survival was the main uh, focus, and you had to stay focused on it in order to survive. So there's a really easy learning method there uh, that's brought about by drama. I mean, so, uh, I mean, if you, you know, a, a mother can tell her children every day before they go to school what, if they walk through the woods to watch for bears. So after a while, they don't see any bears, they'll start not paying very much attention. One time a bear chases them up a tree, they'll never ever forget it, ever forget it and never have to be told again. So the point I'm trying to make here, I guess, in a convoluted way, is that learning is best achieved when we can, when we are capable of uh, creating our own drama. So let's connect that with the concept of purposeful learning and self-education, and and maybe talk a little bit about, if you would, uh, the stories we tell about learning in schools. And, and how they might need to change for us to be doing a better job of becoming self-learners. Yeah. Well, you you can't. It's sort of hard to direct somebody to be self-directed. I mean, you have to. Uh, I mean, to, to me, the 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 goal of the or the the teacher is like Emerson said, is to inspire. I mean, people. I mean. I, I I have several years of, of schooling that I have no memories of at all, and I, I attribute that to the fact that it, they must have not have been very very uh, successful. Uh, and I remember I remember sometimes of daydreaming and just and thinking that I I mean I had I had no interest in what I was talking about and uh, and I was that way until my early thirties. Uh, and and then I gradually began to um, uh, become a little bit more interested and more interested and more interested until so, sort of at one point the pilot light was lit and and it rages on. I've I never uh, I'm never without a, a stack of books about four feet high, uh, and I, I'm never without. Uh, I mean I read two or three books a week and have for about thirty years now. So, so the the interesting conundrum there, or difficulty, is that the experiences that a lot of us have had in our own personal learning don't necessarily match up to the narratives that are told about learning in school. And the very structure of school, as you describe in the book, um, you know, potentially leads people to believe that they have failed or are wounded or or don't do well. How would you counterbalance that, or or how would you suggest we might change things? Well, that's. I mean, I think you have to. I, the best way, how I would go about it, would be that the the objective of the school was to uh, build on strengths, to, to find out in each student what they are, and then sort of build outward. But uh, you have to. There has to be enough autonomy 
to where a student is enabled to uh, gain an intrinsic uh, value from learning. I mean, if you can't, if you have no control over over your the front page of your awareness for a long, long, long period of time, you just sort of shut it down, or at least I did. I think you have to achieve a critical mass of, of learning about any subject at such a point that when you add to it and you add something significant to it, like I said before, you create your own drama. And that drama is, a, is an incredibly uh, enthralling uh, cerebral uh, event. For me, for me it is anyway. So um, is there a way to connect or relate your um, call to action by the the older sunset September sorry September university cohort with how we think about formal schooling um, I'm actually not sure I uh, I drilled down enough on that in my in my preparation to know if you would advocate homeschooling or unschooling or any other methodology? Well, to me, Steve, whatever works, works. I mean, I think some some students do very well with homeschooling. Uh, some do well with with the traditional education the way it is. But I know, I know so many adults. I know so many people who whose whose lives uh, sort of. Uh, move along without any real particular interest in anything, uh, you know, to, to the point of their their curiosity is sort of uh, carterized, and they they a lot of these a lot of people work at at jobs that they don't particularly like. Some actually hate, and they they trade off between working at, at that job and a little bit of mild entertainment, and they'd go for years like that without without any real interest in anything. Uh, and they're just just sort of almost like almost doing time with no real curiosity, and it's for the life of me. I, I, it's feeling the way I do about it now. I mean, I can relate relate to to a time when I was a young adult, and I and I felt like that myself. But it's still so hard after you've changed so much to appreciate what that was like, and. I think it's just one of the most frustrating things in the world that we have that we have that so many people are turned off to uh, education. So there's a temptation to kind of yearn for a previous period of time or a nostalgia around um, what things were like earlier, and clearly we're in a in a period of history when more people are going to need some form of education for employment than ever before. But you do point back to the 18th century in several instances as a period of time when there was a better understanding of this kind of active participation intellectually. And I think about the Federalist Papers and the, you know, the, kind, the level of understanding that was needed to, to be able to read those letters in the newspaper. So right. you want to kind of describe uh, the what you think was going on at that time? Well, um, the, well, if I think you'd have to harken back to a time when there was no media, there was no TV, there was no radio, there, I mean, and and if you imagine a time like that, and uh, and there weren't that many books, but uh, there there were a lot of good books, and people spent an awful lot of time. Uh, uh, reading and talking. Now, I say that I say a lot of people. There were still a, a significant percentage of the population in those days that were illiterate or semi-literate. But the people that did uh, per pursue knowledge, the people who were really interested in in uh, in learning, uh, look like giants today compared in comparatively in. in uh, uh, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson um, made the circuit, speak lecture circuit for years and years and years, and he, his audience, oftentimes didn't really understand what he was saying, but he treated them with such respect, as if they did, that they loved him for it. So, uh, 
was only it was it was only a percentage of the of the population who was really up to the Federalist Papers, I think. But uh, it, there were there weren't in those days. You didn't have to have a credential in order to teach at a university. You had to have the knowledge, and if you had that, that was that was self-evident. And I think that fact alone would make such an incredible difference now if people knew that that whatever that they they learned that they would be rewarded commensurately with without if they could demonstrate it without uh, you know spending a fortune or going into into debt to do. I think we would look at education very differently. Yeah, I would love it if you talk a little bit about the credential piece because that was very new to me. I really appreciated your perspective. And you, in fact, you yourself come from a, a little bit of a different background, right? Uh, yes. Well, uh, uh, I um, I joined the Marine, uh, Marines on my 17th birthday. I dropped out of high school, took a GED, and... Uh, Spent four years in the Marines, came out and became a, a police officer in Dallas, Texas, for about four years. And it was it was after that time after that time that I, I began to uh, uh, really became interested in, in learning and self education. Um, but uh, and I went to work in the early uh, or in the late seventies for a major oil company, and. Not having, you know, a college education was uh, some a bit of a hindrance, but uh, I learned to make up for it by uh, demonstrating the competence to do whatever it is I was supposed to do. And I was I was hired into a management position, but I've I've sort of railed against the uh, against credentialing. Uh, uh, most of my life, I mean, I don't do it so much anymore because I'm I'll be 70 years old and in March, so I mean I'm, I'm retired. But um, when I was active, I, I, I was focused on it a lot. And to me, credential, the credential in the way we do it now, it in so many instances, it, what it actually does is grandfather incompetence. You know, a paper that says you can do this or that means nothing unless you can demonstrate it. And if you can demonstrate it, you don't need the paper. I mean, most jobs, most jobs are learned on the job, even brain surgery. You may not be aware that a, a very hot topic right now is a badging. Is this risen to your awareness? It, I'm sorry, Steve, I didn't understand. Well, it's a movement to um, provide structure for people to issue badges, much like the Boy Scout program but within education so that things that typically haven't been recognized formally can be recognized and there's a there's a fairly strong contingent of people who really like the badging movement as a way of recognizing alternate alternative learning or unique learning but I worry that it's just more a system of external validation that misses the point of the manifestation of what you can do being what you can do I think you're probably right about that. I'm not. I'm not familiar with with what with badging, but uh, I mean, I, I would tend to agree with what you said about it. Okay, so I I want to be careful here. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do think that oftentimes we can explain things that happen historically based on interests of those mm -hmm. who have the ability to further those interests, and. The idea that you have a quote in the book from Kant, having the courage to use your own intelligence, mm -hmm. it feels as though there are some groups, especially uh, politically and economically, who've benefited from us not using our intelligence, from being sort of compliant consumers. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, they they do depend on it. I mean, um, and and. and Uneducated citizenry is incredibly manipulable. I mean, and the, in the last 30 years, there has been an awful lot learned in neuroscience and psychology, and and some of it is is so profound that it's uh, 
it's really a shame that it's, that it's not common knowledge. I mean, for example, politically, we we tend to the areas in the brain light up when somebody touches our political hot buttons, and we tend to uh, shut off the discourse. We tend to stop listening. We only listen for confirmation bias, and uh, psychologically, you know, we've, we grow, we grow up thinking that character is one thing, and that we're, that we're always consistent, and and that our uh, personality means this or that. And the truth of the matter is that context of the situation often matters a whole lot more than our personality and our temperament. And it's it's very disappointing to to learn maybe that uh, a psychologist could create a situation and know what you're going to do, and you wouldn't know it. And one of the easiest things to do is to manipulate people by touching their hot buttons. I mean, that's, you know, talk talk radio is thrives on pushing hot buttons. And um, media, media itself, you know, the, the, even the t television stations and talk shows and what have you, it's like, Beach volleyball. They spike the ball at every opportunity to keep us watching. And as, as long as you can, they can touch that hot button, and we can become, uh, you know, hostile to, to to those people that we think are others. We are easily manipulable. We don't have a. We we have. We. I don't think we've ever been any more polarized than we are right now politically. So I like an author named Dan Ariely who wrote um, a book called Predictably Irrational. And he yes. describes ways in which we make purchasing decisions that something more expensive seems to be more valuable. And intriguingly for me, I call this the Ariely principle, but that's, those are my words, not his. The awareness of this psychological process in many ways frees us from its influence. When we become aware that price often doesn't correlate to value, it ceases to actually affect us. You use a quote well, in the I, book from Postman. Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I lost my train of thought anyway. Well, you use a quote in the book from Neil Postman that education is a defense against one's culture, which I really like. Mm -hmm. But I also feel as though education is a defense against our own sort of lesser natures. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, but, uh, you know, every culture in the world thinks that they're, they're, theirs is the one that sort of hung the moon and everybody else is just searching and hasn't found the real true reality yet. And to me, as soon as a person realizes that intellectually, uh, you should go reeling into, into introspection and think about your own culture and the things that are so arbitrary that you think are absolute, that are absolutes and are not. Uh, I, it just, it, I mean, people can, you know, the, the old saying, the fewer the facts, the stronger their opinion. I mean, that that nothing could probably capture the the state of our, our political discussion right now is people, and I can remember being most adamantly uh, argumentative when I knew very, very little about what I was talking about. I mean, you, what you have to do in that respect is default to your emotion and your and relate to your identity group. And when you're re relating and not reasoning, then you become, you have no choice but to become increasingly emotional. That's, I think, what worried me so much about this particular election cycle. And I don't know if it was my own development or it was just this particular cycle, but I think a lot of us expected President Obama to act differently than he did. And some of the sort of most egregious, um, to me, this is personal opinion, um, things that have happened uh, both through the last few presidencies um, really were unrecognized in the election. And I, I actually got kind of scared that the emotion was so powerful that it was not allowing us to see the dangers of, say, in, as an example, the, um, um, the issues around habeas corpus or around wiretapping. 
are, is this dangerous to us as a culture? I think so. I agree with you 100%. Okay, I went, I went pretty deep there, and I didn't get into trouble, or at least you didn't let me get into trouble. <laughs> uh, uh, it's uh, um, uh, those are very, that's a very dangerous area, and and we we can't seem to get it to make it a part of the a part of a media focus. I mean, you can bring it up, and it just goes away. It goes away, and people don't seem to be interested in talking about it. I actually think this was what I've liked most about the new movie Lincoln was uh -huh. that it creates an opportunity for some pretty serious dialogue around the decisions that were made that uh, where the ends justified the means. Mm -hmm. And it, at least with my own children, it allowed for a pretty rich discussion about um, you know, what, what actually happens in politics. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it burst a bit of the bubble about uh, uh, how much more honorable, I guess, they acted in those days. I, I saw the movie, too, and I, I thought it was great. Uh, at one point during that movie, I, I, I caught myself thinking that I was really looking at Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it was. I agree. It was, a, for me, a brilliant experience. Um, okay, so you talk about uh, being able to see through the camouflage. So have we pretty much discussed that, or is there anything else you'd want to say that that we need to that we need to be thinking about being able to see clearly? Uh, I don't know. I have to. I mean, I don't know. Um, nothing right off the top of my head, Steve. Uh, um, Why don't you talk a little about, bit about? Go ahead. I always think about what I should have said when I hang up. That's okay. Um, what about consumer culture? Uh, I mean, that comes up in the book, obviously. Well, I think I think we have gone so far down the road of consumer culture that it that uh, materialism has become sort of a quasi religion. I think probably perhaps more important in religion in some aspects and some some uh, culture, but uh, I, I think. Um, I think we need to renew. I, I, I have started several uh, actions in the past, but that never really went anywhere. Trying to get media to stop calling us consumers and start calling us citizens. I think if the the simple fact of doing that would, um, uh, you know, make make us more aware. I mean, a consumer doesn't do anything but consume. Another point you make in the book that was kind of a fall out of my chair point for me because it's one I've been making and felt very alone in making was the the degree to which we trade our ability to speak freely when we go to work for most companies. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the the older older I I got, uh, the, the more freely I spoke. <laughs> Uh, to the point of, uh, you know, being on dangerous ground a lot. But uh, um, there is uh, there is so much. One of the things I've been doing lately, I've, I've been studying prehistory and, and have been studying the subject of anarchy. Uh, and and you know, most people when you say the word anarchy, people think about people throwing Molotov cocktails and stuff. But uh, the 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 discipline of anchor, I mean, the subject of anarchy in anthropology it just goes back to a time to when before that there were hierarchies or what you know when there are tribes with no chiefs, and you, I don't think you can think about that for very long without starting to see the connection and the oppressive nature of almost any kind of an organization. I mean, organizations start, started for very noble purposes can still be oppressive. And with the best intentions in the world, and so um, if uh, I mean, it, you know, there's so many, so many companies where, uh, well, my, my, politically, I've always been. I mean, I grew up in a in a very conservative town, uh, in a conservative family, and uh, my self-education has turned me into into a, a liberal. Uh, 
And you know, imagine being a liberal in a major oil company. And imagine how rare that is. So um, you just uh, <laughs> uh, there are so many different ways that we don't speak. Uh, we don't speak our minds, uh, and when we should, and there are, there are big consequences. I mean, there are incredible consequences, and, and they're hard hard to overestimate. We drilled down on this a little in Yale Wishnick's interview. He wrote the uh, as a representative of the teachers union in California. Um, he's a very interesting fellow who's gone back and looked at the founding of the country and concluded that you know we, this culture that sort of celebrated success that existed at that time has become a culture that uh, depends on dependency now. And we talked about the roots of the word liberal and the idea of freedom. And um, somebody I'm intrigued with, Noam Chomsky, actually describes himself politically as an anarchist. I'm not trying to try know what that means, but I do find it interesting that um, um, that you would say that. Um, okay, so uh, I, I want to kind of, if we can, bridge a little to a lot some some Q and A, but also bridge a little to sort of solutions. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious if you thought about the mechanisms that might be supported or encouraged that would provide for the great conversations of those who are in the September of their lives. Uh, how do we? How do we bring back the, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the word now, the, the Lyceum movement? Well, there's, there's, there's an awful lot of it going on right now. Uh, I mean, the internet has never, I mean, there, there's never been as much possible, I mean, although I think that Chicago, Chautauqua movement was was great and and wonderful. I mean, it doesn't hold a candle to what's going on right now, really. Uh, but we need to we need to uh, we need to to get to get the dialogue going and keep it going. I ha I have a I have great difficulty uh, want doing several things at once, and I, I I keep getting bogged down in writing, and I don't uh, I haven't promoted. September University, like I, I should, uh, I I can't. When I focus on on writing a new book, I, I get so worked worked into it that I the time slips away from me. But uh, uh, I have a, a whole list of of things to do in the book uh, that people can do, and a, a, a number of them that I need to to do better than I'm doing. I mean, I I, I get uh, so uh, focused and tied up in my work that. Uh, I, I just can't. Time run. Time. Time slips away. So I'm going to encourage people if they'd like to ask a question to either put it in the chat or feel free to raise your hand and I'll give you the microphone, and uh, we'll we'll move to the Q&A portion. Uh, while we're doing so, Charles, if you want to list some of the things that you think people could do, I I think they would enjoy that. The t the audience is largely educators usually. Okay. Um, many of whom are of an age probably close to what we're talking about. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, say that again, Steve. Oh, I think that uh, there are those in the audience who would enjoy hearing um, a short list from you of things that you think people could do who fit into this category of being in in the close to the September of their lives and oh, okay. Okay. Well, could you could be making a difference. Okay. Well, you could decide what you really care about, and uh, sort of discern the genealogy of your own values, and try to comprehend why you value those things. You can perform an exhaustive internet search, following your own interest to find organizations dedicated to shaping the future, and let your your strengths and personal interests be your guide. You can start your own September University chapter. Seek out discussion groups and share your interest. Uh, Look for opportunities to engage in civil dialogue. Uh, invite members of other groups to join yours. Uh, learn about the requirements uh, for a stable, a sustainable future. And uh, familiarize yourself with arguments of those who appear to oppose your views. 
join or visit groups who don't seem to share your values, and read the books you've always wanted to read. Uh, study as if what you learn really really matters. <laughs> There's some nice comments in the chat here. Carolyn, thanks both for the link and the compliment on the show. The funny part is, Charles, that this interview series really is my form of participating in learning. You, you can add to that list, start an interview series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Angie says, I would rather think of being in the senior category as the golden age of learning. We have the innate sense of need for clear, clear educational thinking. We do care for the upcoming generations, but also, we also do not need to think we are incapable of continuing to learn ourselves. Uh, um, I, I would yeah. like to ask you. Go ahead. Yeah, right. P plus the fact that you have a, a, a lifetime of experience to 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 compare to with what you learn. Yes. Sorry, just reading the chat there. Um, Scott says, our college can't find mentors to help students. Their peers are too focused on loans and jobs. Can this be listening to others for advice gone out of style plus the busy part? Uh, uh, well, uh, I'm not sure how to. Can, can you repeat that question? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand the second part, but he's talking about uh, the college having can't find mentors to help students. The peers are too focused on loans and jobs. Oh yeah, yeah, can that's that's true. Listening? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm working on a novella at the moment uh, entitled "The Call of Mortality." It's about a it's about a, an old philosophy professor who, who is retiring and and taking a new, uh, a new young replacement out on an overnight camping trip in the Alaska wilderness. And one of the things this young man concludes at the end, uh, is to, to approach the land grant universities, with a volunteer group, of volunteer philosophers, to go around the country and and start groups and help people. Uh, understand themselves and others in conjunction with the mind, how the mind really works, and not how we grew up thinking it did. Interesting. You've written fiction before, right? Yes, I, I, I published a novel about ten years ago called Portals in a Northern Sky, and I have a I have a a novella on on. On Amazon, called uh, Pansy, Bovine Genius in Wild Alaska. It's about a genius cow in, <laughs> in Alaska. It's really about post. I think you need. I think you need to write a book about two horses, <laughs> one wild and free up on the hill, looking down <laughs> at the one saddled and working on the farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I talked quite a bit in September University about a saddle horse, what, a, what I call a saddle horse education. There's some nuance there as well, though. As I was reading that, I thought, you know, there are ways in which the, the partnership between man and beast can be beneficial to both. Uh -huh. And there are ways in which just being wild and uh, not um, ordered or disciplined can be a negative. Does that particular imagery actually allow for some deeper thinking? Yeah, I think so. And like I said before, when if you if you focus and and just start thinking about what life must have been like with with uh, tribes without chiefs, I mean that that is that's a profound thought when you get to thinking about it, and you get to thinking about all the different organizations, the the local. Uh, uh, City and state and borough and county and and uh, company and and how all of those things affect your life and uh, I mean it's it, it's 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 really enlightening to do that I, I really encourage it I mean the the people 
that talk to us about anarchy and stuff, you know, I've always been sort of turned off by that. I mean, you know, it, it, you, you just, the image you have is people riding in the streets, but that's not where they're really coming from at all. They're just uh, uh, talking about a life lived with his with as little alienation as possible, as little hierarchy as possible. Um, and uh, and even though so many organizations have noble intentions and they're, they're founded on noble efforts, they can become oppressive very easily. And, and uh, we have a very significant uh, portion of the population of, of people who, in my view, are way too easy to, to uh, manipulate. So are you familiar with um, Ivan Illich's work, Deschooling Society? Oh, uh, 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 Illich? Oh, yes, I am. Yes, Correct. I, yes, I sure am. I'm not sure that I actually fully understand him, but I do feel there's an argument being made that Oftentimes, institutions end up creating the opposite of what they were designed to do. Yep, yeah, they sure do. And the, and the, and the you know, the, the function is always to protect the institution over the individual. That seems to be where it always goes. And hierarchies become self-reinforcing and rigid. I mean, you always have to toe the company line and and. Um, and protect the organization at all cost. I mean, and you know, organizations, uh, you know, government organizations do not disassemble. They keep growing, and they keep growing and growing and growing. Uh, and they can they can be founded on the most noble intentions and and get completely out of hand. We probably have time for one final question. If somebody has a question. Uh, Jenny's asking what others think about chartered schools. Charles, do you have an opinion on the charter school movement? Well, I, I think I think uh, I, I have read about some of them that seem very, very fairly successful, but I don't think they're fundamentally any different than any other kind of organization. They are simply an organization, and uh, if uh, if they have the right uh, Intention. I mean, if, if they had to use the right technique and they uh, focus on the the student and and help that student become inspired and excited about something, I don't see why they can't be successful. Same as a homeschooler or what have you. But uh, I don't think any. I don't have any special uh, uh, feelings for them. I do notice that a lot of chartered schools actively involve. Uh, teachers and parents in their creation, and that's an aspect I have really appreciated, although I know that's not universal. Mm -hmm. There's a discussion in the chat about money and the focus changing as soon as the car loan payments start, Scott says. Um, there's, a, there's a lot in this book, September University, that I think people would find very interesting in that regard. You call it the thrall of money, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it relates to the consumer culture. Um, it, any final thoughts on that, maybe as our closing remark? Well, I think you know. I mean, we we hear it constantly. We say it. We we hear everybody say it. We agree that the education is one of the most important things in the world, and yet we 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 make it so expensive that uh, a person almost has to engage in indentured servitude in order to become educated. I mean, I mean, you know, in a in a uh, college or university. It makes no sense. To me, if education is what we need, we ought to make it, if not free, at least very, very affordable. And I think I think the current system is going to crumble of its own weight in the future if it doesn't do that. You know, the, the student loan debt right now is higher than credit card debt in this country. And that can't sustain itself, especially if people graduated from college can't find a job that's uh, for which they can pay off the loan. Right, and it certainly predisposes one to taking a job that reduces one's liberty to say or do the things that you want to do. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's when when thinking about that, thinking about what life would be like without hierarchy, 
it, it's it's a it's really a profound thing to, if you if you focus on it long enough. Charles, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, well, thanks for having me. It's really been delightful. So we've been talking with Charles Hayes. The book is September University: Summoning Passion for an Unfinished Life. A call and a challenge to those who are in the September of their lives to be active participants in helping to build our world. Coming up on Thursday, Jim Groom will talk about a domain of one's own. Thanks, Charles. Okay, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate the very good conversation and the dialogue in the chat. Take care now and goodbye.